Welcome to Uptown Chats, a podcast where we share stories about environmental justice by and for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Jaron. And I'm your other co-host, Lonnie. And the question we're asking ourselves today is, why is childhood lead poisoning still an issue? And why is it so bad in New York? We'll be exploring these questions with the help of two special guests, Sonal Jessel, who is our Director of City and State Policy at WEACT, also my supervisor. And we have Matthew Shasher, who's a former attorney at Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation, who has come out of retirement for us. <laughs> <laughs> you want him, we got him. Yes, but before we get to all that stuff, Lonnie, can you tell us what WEACT's mission is? My pleasure. WEACT's mission is to build healthy communities by ensuring that people of color and or low-income residents participate meaningfully in the creation of sound and fair environmental health and protection policies and practices. Nailed it. It's better every time. Now, before we get into all of the nitty-gritty with lead and New York, we have to you know set the stage because I know a lot of folks are not familiar with lead. You may be wondering, why, why are we talking about this? Like, the lead in the water, is that what we're talking about? Many well, people probably are wondering, this is still an issue? Yes, exactly. Well, we're going to get to that. Uh, but first, you know, important question. What is lead? Why is it bad for our health? And why is New York the worst? Well, first of all, lead is a chemical element with the symbol PB and the atomic number 82 for all of those chemistry nerds out there. And it's a soft and malleable metal that is also considered one of the heavy metals. But because of those qualities, soft and malleable metal, it's been used in all kinds of materials, including paint, pipes, and other products, and it can also be found in the soil. And of course, you know, one of our primary concerns is paint and pipes, but the other ones are a concern as well. And that's because lead can adversely affect our health through our, our nervous system, can impact kidney function, immune system function, reproductive and uh, development systems and also our cardiovascular system. And it's especially toxic to children because they're small and they're still developing, and so that exposure can lead to a lifetime of negative health impacts. And a fact for New York City specifically, in 2021, 2,557 children, over 2,500 children under the age of six were identified with elevated blood lead levels. So that's children that uh, not only were they exposed, but it made it into their body and left them with elevated blood lead levels. And so they're likely to have lifelong impacts as a result of that. That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of kids that are being exposed to lead. That's not great. And we know that that's not fairly distributed. It's an environmental justice podcast, so no surprises here. So Lonnie, can you tell us more about what does that look like? What's the breakdown of these kids that are exposed to lead? Absolutely. And there's just one thing to say there is that there's no safe level of lead in, in, a, in a child's blood, right? Mm-hmm. Zero. The number of people a number of children under the age of six with these elevated blood levels should be zero. That is that is the absolute goal. It becomes an environmental justice issue because 81% of the children under age of six with these elevated blood le- levels. It's were, hard to say. It is. It, it, <laughs> elevated blood, 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 blood levels. <laughs> the reason why this is an environmental justice issue is because 81% of the children under age of six with elevated blood lead levels were Asian, Black, or Latinx. And again, that was 2021 data that we have. Um, This is often attributed to lower quality housing conditions, which are parallel with a lot of Asian, Black, and Latinx uh, families throughout New York City. And it's really important to point out that a lot of people think of poor housing quality, they think often think of public housing first. But when it comes to this particular issue, 91% of those, those kids who have those elevated blood lead levels 
uh, were in private dwellings. And so that's private housing, not necessarily public housing. So it is a huge problem, both for public and private housing. Yeah. And my understanding is there are some laws on the books that are supposed to protect us from lead exposure, right? Can you tell us about some of those? Exactly. The big law is Local Law 1 of 2004, which basically is the Childhood Lead Poisoning Prevention Act. And this was a behemoth of a law that had a lot of different aspects to it. So it defines lead-based paint hazards, talks about the violations. If you have lead paint within a a dwelling, uh, inspections that are supposed to happen, what are the owners supposed to do of a building, talks about safe work practices for construction, the response to a lead poison child, right? So if, you know, kid What'd has, you do? yeah, you know, get tested, what are, what are we supposed to do? What is the city supposed to do going forward? And also then just the general enforcement of, of these, of this law. And so this was a big law that had some, some gaps and some holes in it. And since 2004, um, there have been other laws added to kind of fill in some of those gaps and to strengthen the law, which is something that the New York City Coalition to End Lead Poisoning, also known as NICELP, with Matthew Shasher is a part of. Goal is to advocate for legislation and enforcement of these lead laws. Recently, the coalition NICELP released its 2024 lead agenda, which is basically a roadmap to eliminating lead poisoning in New York City. So it's all of our recommendations to make sure that the city continues to get to that that number zero yeah because that that's that's what we're aiming for right but thank you for that lonnie as you can tell lonnie does this work in the day-to-day she's very knowledgeable about it so thank you for that quick recap Uh, but with that we're going to jump into our interviews with sonal and matthew they have a great overview of the current landscape of work that we act is doing but also the long history there's a, a legacy of dealing with lead that's been going on in the world but especially here in new york and new york city and so we're gonna walk you through that journey uh, as we kind of went through it ourselves and, and, and looking at that history so enjoy all right so thank you so much for joining us for uh, this episode of uptown chats before we get carried away can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your path to we act Yes, and I'm so happy to be here, waiting many months for my turn to be on the podcast. Um, My name is Sonal Jessel. I'm the director of policy at WEACT. I oversee our city and our state policy work with a wonderful team of seven. And um, my path to WEACT was through grad school, went to public health school researching the impacts of climate change on health and was particularly inspired and mentored by Dr. Diana Hernandez, who taught me all about energy insecurity and what it means to not have adequate cooling in your home and how that is a a really big environmental justice problem. So it gave me a lot of passion around doing local policy work and local community-based participatory research. And um, because WE Act was right there, it brought me right here. And I was lucky that there was a job open when I was looking for one. I appreciate that kind of 
a little bit of a backstory. Uh, I also find it funny because I went to the same program, and ah. it's, it's so funny that we both, you know, ended up here. Yeah, there's some, something funny about, you know, both the physical proximity, but also just like the relationship proximity of, you know, the Mammoth School of Public Health and and we act and how, you know, clearly there's a, there's some kind of pathway that we don't know about that's just directing people here. <laughs> yes, because Columbia, I guess the school was shaping minds meant for we act mm-hmm. in many ways. Yes, we yeah. are lucky. It's an so, invisible pipeline. Yeah. 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 So we're talking about lead, childhood lead poisoning uh, in this episode. So my question is, how does preventing uh, childhood lead poisoning show up in the work that we act does? Yeah. I mean, I think childhood lead poisoning is a topic that we act has been working on for a very long time, unfortunately, because it's been a problem for generations. And it really is a very textbook environmental justice issue in that, especially in New York City, and, uh, you know, this is true for other cities around the world, but for New York, it's like 80% of children with lead poisoning are children of color. And so it's very clear that there is a injustice going on in terms of who is exposed to lead and how that's being addressed or not addressed. And so I guess it's been a problem for a long time and is core to WEAC's work because it really is addressing this issue of how people's housing is not adequate, which is something WEAC really spends a lot of time working on in many different facets, but also how policies haven't exactly led to fixing a problem and have current continued to fail children of color when they are not failing other children as well. So it is, um, I think, a key topic area for We Act in that sense. And, um, you know, it's something that is not only a problem in New York City, but is a problem statewide unique to New York. We have the oldest housing stock, so we have the worst lead problem as a state. And so that's also, I think, a mantle that we have to kind of bear um, with our work is that we are dealing with a very large scope of problem when it comes to lead poisoning. If I remember correctly, this is something that was part of your beginning journey here at We Act, correct? Can you maybe talk through a little bit about how the work has changed since your time, you know, starting here at WEACT and compared to, you know, where we kind of stand now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when I first started at WEACT, I was doing all the city policy work, which is what LJ is leading up now. And um, so I was convening the city coalition that we manage on lead poisoning. And when I came into WEACT, they were, had just finished up one of two reports on uh, what we were calling lead loopholes. So it was kind of exposing the fact that New York City has woefully inadequate implementation of lead laws that the city created that were meant to that was meant to end childhood lead poisoning by 2010. So I was really intrigued by that and obviously like was in shock and horror that <laughs> that this problem was so pervasive in a way that I didn't know. I didn't study in school. I didn't learn about. I grew up in California. We didn't have as much lead, albeit there's still some, but you know, a lot of newer buildings are, are in California. You don't have that as much. And so I was really shocked by really just the fact that the city had dropped the ball on doing what they were supposed to do in terms of requiring buildings to get rid of lead. And so I was able to help convene that coalition, 
work on passing a couple key bills that we're trying to continue to close those loopholes in the enforcement requiring apartments that have uh, pregnant people in it are sort of now covered in terms of apartments that need to be checked, for example. There were a couple other loopholes that we closed there, uh, but that was really exciting. And then I got to be a part of writing report number two, which was continuing to show that, that the enforcement wasn't working about two years later. And that in particular, even if the city was administering violations for lead paint to building owners, they never actually collected on those violations. So they kind of just let them go. Um, nobody paid fines. Nobody got in trouble. So that was the the second report key finding that was really horrific was um, actually comparing it to like street vendor violations, for example, where um, the city really enforces those rules and imposes fines and collects those fines consistently. But they don't do it for building owners that are ch- poisoning children with lead. So that report was really interesting and eye-opening and frustrating. And um, that was kind of my first foray into it. I think that's interesting, too, of just the idea of what we enforce and what we don't enforce and what doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. it, when you when you kind of think about this, like, well, there are children who are being really pretty much affected for the rest of their lives. Um, and a lot of these are preventable. This is preventable issue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can, you t- can you talk a little bit about the current state between the difference between like the city and the state? Like, is the city doing more than the state or vice versa? And kind of like, how does that play out? Yes. Very important question. So the city has local law one of 2004. Uh, which was passed in 2004. And um, that is sort of the umbrella-led law for New York City that's saying when an apartment goes vacant, a building owner has to abate lead in that apartment so that when they rent it out again, there's no lead in there. So turnover was the idea. You know, since then, we've all been working on making that bill stronger and increasing the enforcement. New York State, on the other hand, so all the other municipalities don't have that law at all. So there is no statewide mandate around abating lead in paint, in water, in soil. Uh, those are the top top sources. So that is a big problem because you don't have really a leverage point in terms of requiring a building owner, requiring a homeowner to get rid of lead in their home that they then rent out to another family or to their own families um, in a way that you do in New York City. And so for the advocacy you do in New York City, it's very much based off of saying, well, New York City, you're supposed to do this. You have a law. You have to uphold it. You said you're going to do it. And you have a lot more leverage. You have a lot more to argue. And you can even use the legal system to your benefit, which we've seen Attorney General James use the city's lead laws to go after bad acting landlords. But for New York State, the rest of the state, unless an individual municipality has the laws, which pretty much none of them do, um, there are really no protections. So that's something that we're trying to do on a state level with our Lead Free Kids New York Coalition, which is our state level coalition, to put in a law that's statewide that will help people with with their lead in their homes. A question I have, and you kind of like kind of touched on it a little bit in some of your answers already, is. Why has the work been stalled so much? It sounds like a lot of it has to do with lack of response. The city and the state, obviously, failing to like make the 
actions that are kind of being pointed out in some of these reports like you're not doing this like you need to be doing that mm -hmm. uh, what are some of like the main reasons why this work has been so stalled or, or why it has not been you know addressed at this point or things that have been real barriers like has it been really just the lack of, of of fines and 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 that not feeling not creating that kind of pressure on, on landlords for someone who's been doing it for a while doing this work for a while what are some of the things that you've noticed that are like this is a huge hurdle that we just keep ignoring Right. Three things come to mind, and I'll try to be succinct. Mm -hmm. There's a big one, the main one, in my opinion, racism. Mm -hmm. Racism is a hurdle. This is an issue, like I said, that primarily affects children of color, low-income children. And we've seen in the history of the United States, that is not a priority in terms of environmental health and environmental justice and keeping people safe. And so that is certainly a barrier we're dealing with. We don't find that there's a lot of political will for addressing childhood lead poisoning. I think, you know, it's a problem that's been around for a very long time and everyone thinks it's solved and doesn't worry about it. Um, and so that to me is the core thing. That's the core thing that's operating here is who do we care about in our policymaking and who do we not? So to me, that's the biggest hurdle. There are some other contributing factors that are uh, we that we kind of constantly come across in the advocacy space. The other big one is landlords and the real estate industry in New York City. They are a very, very, very powerful group, and they tend to not like to be regulated. <laughs> and so we are constantly up against the real estate industry in terms of creating requirements for building owners, landlords, people selling homes, people renting homes to actually have any kind of responsibility towards maintaining a healthy home. I mean, I'm sure all of us that live in New York City have experienced a problem in our housing and been like, how are we not addressing this? And we don't. And that's because the real estate industry is really powerful. Um, so that's something that we're also up against. And then lastly, cost. Cost is a big barrier we don't think that makes sense. It doesn't cancel out when you add medical costs to how much this actually costs the city and the state, this problem. But that is something that's argued a lot is that the cost of abating lead, the cost of testing for lead, the cost of replacing lead pipes, all of that is too expensive. Um, so that's the other major barrier that we come up against. Uh, we're seeing that a lot in our work on the state level in terms of implementing some lead laws. Cost has been coming up a lot as a big barrier. Yeah, I see so many similarities in what you're saying in, in the work around asthma uh, mm -hmm. as well and like the, the racism com component of it. Like any map of asthma outcomes in, in New York City, probably New York State as well, you know, it's it's communities of color. You know, it's 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 Almost for anyone in this space, if you look at any basic environmental justice maps, they, you could basically just substitute them from one to the other and just change the title. They all look very similar. You know, it's kind mm -hmm. of telling that same story. And yeah, yeah it's, and it's, you'll you'll see like Washington Heights, for example, is a really good one because they're an area that apparently has really high lead violations mm -hmm. without any actual fine collection. Mm -hmm. But they're also in a neighborhood that has really, really high asthma rates. Mm -hmm. So you can see there's totally an overlap, almost one-to-one. -one. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting in those kind of three buckets that you laid out is and something that I encounter every time is just the education piece. Mm -hmm. This idea that people didn't know is still a problem. Um, it wasn't until I started working at WEACT and I started taking over some of the work that you were doing that I'm just like, 
oh, this this is why is this a problem still? And like, how how is this happening? And like learning all these different uh, factors, because every time I've talked to an elected official or someone that we want to move to do something to help along, it's always shocked and surprised that mm-hmm. this is still an issue. Now, whether they continue to do anything about it, um, another, another question. question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. they're always shocked and surprised that this is a problem. And I'm wondering, do you do you think is, this is also an issue of like public awareness? How many people just who are not doing this work are unaware that this is a bigger mm-hmm. problem? Do you think if more people knew that it could push along some type of um, more advocacy in that way? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if I've actually seen any kind of statistic on like public awareness of lead mm-hmm. in New York City. And I'm really curious if there is one. I feel like people tend to know, at least in New York City, maybe because I grew up in a different place that this wasn't as much of a problem. I didn't hear about it as much. But in New York City, people seem to know about lead. But what they definitely don't seem to know about is their rights when it comes to lead. So I think that is also a key intervention point. And I remember that was something that we had advocated for. And I don't remember the exact contents of the bill, but we did pass a bill into law maybe like right when you were starting to take over that was around flyering for lead um, in apartments and maybe with medical offices that you can, you actually have to like show people what their rights are when it comes to lead in their homes. But I think that's something that nobody seems to know that there actually is a law that if you move into an apartment, your landlord was supposed to have taken care of the lead. Like if you move, if you moved after 2004, your land was supposed to take care of the lead. <laughs> so everyone is entitled to that. Yeah. And it, it seems like there are, there are multiple barriers. And when navigating the system alone, especially for people who probably are living in lower income neighborhoods and don't mm-hmm. necessarily have the same resources as other people, because I've heard wealthier, more fluent parents talk about their struggles with navigating the system for yeah. lead. So I can't imagine what goes on when someone already doesn't have those same resources, has to figure out the health situation and then try to figure out the housing situation if they even try to go that far. Mm -hmm. And then where do you go? Can I, you know, can I sue? Can I, you know, like all while trying to deal with the actual health problem as well for their child. So I always find that pretty just stark that the system itself doesn't lend itself to to help anyone try to navigate Mm -hmm. so that that child can grow up successful and have a better uh, health outcomes, but it doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even talk about exactly how lead even impacts you, but kids that are poisoned with lead have a lifetime, you know, of impact. And so you can imagine a difficulty navigating a system when you were meant to be protected that has a life, a lifetime of impact when it comes to lead poisoning. It's so bad. Yeah. Especially thinking about just, you know, a lot of folks who there's like multiple generations in a home and how that translates to multiple generations that are then impacted by that same mm-hmm. exposure. And then it's, it has a compounding effect essentially on so mm-hmm. many dimensions of your life at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So just to kind of circle back to something that we, again, started to allude to, where does our work now kind of stand in terms of what we are specifically advocating for? You know, we've, sounds like we've both come a long way, but also not. And, and there's maybe different challenges now than, you know, three years ago. And 
however long ago when all this work started. Uh, yeah, what, what would you say are kind of some of the main things that we as an organization are kind of advocating for in this space now to to help really in a significant way, like move this work forward? Mm-hmm. And I'll say like we act has been involved in lead is my understanding since the 90s. It was like one of the first things we act was involved in with the New York City Coalition to End Lead Poisoning passing local law one of 2004. So, yeah, the organization the has been doing this. <laughs> origin story. I have not been doing this since 1990. <laughs> I'm still young, but yeah. So, laws have been passed, which is good. There are more mechanisms in place to be testing homes, to be requiring homes to be abated, to be filing information about how the testing goes with agencies, requiring agencies to audit is something that we recently got done, thanks to LJ and running the city coalition. So all of these things have happened, which is really exciting. And what we have seen, and I guess we don't know if it's directly attributed to us, but it feels very related to uh, after the reports that we put out and the hearings that we've done over the past five or so years in the city. And then the comptroller actually also did a lead report around that same time for the city. We have seen enforcement go up. So we have seen the city adhering to their laws a little bit better. So we are seeing that get better. And over the past 20, 30 years since Local Law 1 did go into place, we have seen the number of kids with blood declining. It's not declining at the rate that it should, given that this is a 100% preventable problem. But it is going down. Enforcement is going up. Code violation fines are being collected more than they were before. So we are seeing it move in the right direction, certainly. But there are still lots of things to do, lots of problems to solve. I think, you know, maybe LJ can say a little bit about it. But I think something around funding is something folks are talking about in the city is how do we make sure that um, the resources are there to actually do the work that needs to get done. Quick follow up question for that. As we kind of go through in this work, we're seeing some progress being made. What happens when, like, say, the action levels, uh, action levels are lowered? Yes. So... That recently happened. It went from five parts per billion to 3.5 parts per billion via the CDC saying that is now the safe level of lead, which, by the way, all pediatricians say there is no safe level of lead. But that's what the administration has put out federally. So what happens essentially is that all of a sudden you have more kids with elevated blood lead levels because you have a lower threshold of what is considered elevated. And so in theory, you have more kids to put through some kind of um, supportive system to help them with learning, to help them with, you know, if you have to go through therapy to lower your blood lead level, which happens in severe cases, to recoup medical costs, whatever that is, um, there are more kids in that pipeline all of a sudden. Uh, But at the same time, you're capturing more children who have some kind of lead exposure, which is a good thing. So you do need, I think, more resources, more funding, which is the thing we're talking about now to address the problem. But it is ultimately a good thing because you do want, I mean, if we had our choice, we'd be capturing every kid that has more than zero parts per billion of um, lead in their blood. So it's a good thing, but it does require expanded services. And I always love a good analogy. It's like a comparable to like if you have a bunch of kids in school and you all of a sudden define like failing as a D instead of an F. So now kids that have an F 
or a D are considered failing. Now you have a whole swath of kids at mm-hmm. school who are now considered failing that weren't considered failing before. And now you need to come up with a success plan to like get them to, you know, to improve and have better outcomes. Right. Yeah. 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 Love a good analogy. It's a good L- one. Lonnie looks at me with the same face every time I, <laughs> I'm like, come on, land this plane. I'm just like, where is this going? <laughs> I feel like stuff when you really get into like the toxicology of like lead and other environmental health exposures, it gets, really complicated really fast and i feel like trying to like comprehend like what what does that mean to people who are not in that space can can be hard sometimes so you know we've all been in school and we all have know d's and f's uh, d's and f's (laughs) yep so yeah it's also it's kind of difficult when you tell when you say people there's no safe level and then people are like well then if i'm getting tested and Mm -hmm. i and there is a level and there's something there why why is it no one panicking if there's mm-hmm. no safe level so yeah. yes definitely yeah that's where you see and this is true across so many policies in the environmental health space but that's where you see the difference between a governmental decision and a health-based decision mm-hmm. oftentimes they are in conflict with each other and that's half the battle mm-hmm. yeah the only thing i'll say about my analogy so it doesn't fall apart too bad is that obviously the grade yeah uh, like you know Children being exposed to lead, not their fault. You know, at the end of the day, like this is something no. that's very much outside of their control. So, you know, we don't need to get, we don't need to dissect the analogy too much. <laughs> <laughs> You're worrying about your analogy. <laughs> that's okay. It's fine. Don't worry. And yeah. yeah, I mean, and it also like we liken the amount of lead exposure to a sweet and low packet. Oh, yes. I love that yeah, analogy. The little sugar packet. That's as much lead as you need to kind of be impacted for your lifetime. So mm-hmm. it's not very much. It's probably pretty easy to get that level of exposure if mm-hmm. you have any lead in your home. So certainly not the fault of children. Before we wrap up two things one i want to open up the space for you to to share anything that you know that we haven't talked about yet that you feel like is really important for folks to know and understand related to this work around lead and then two i, I think you have a funny story to tell us about <laughs> your your uh, interaction with ChatGPT, and i think that you know people might want to hear that okay uh well i'll give the the first answer is just like what's next what can we do so we are currently working at the city and the state level around lead work. And there are opportunities for anybody listening to be involved. We are working on trying to pass a very important bill on the state level called the Lead Testing Right to Know Act. And um, what this bill is doing is saying that before any property is bought or sold, uh, whoever is selling the property does need to show proof that they've tested the property for lead and the results of that test. Uh, so it doesn't need to happen when you're buying or selling the property. It just has to happen at some point. Like if you've done it, you just have to kind of give the piece of paper that you did it. And that would then go to a registry in the Department of Health for the state, and the state will actually know where lead poisoning cases might be and where to kind of target remediation efforts. And so uh, this is a bill that will be helpful across the state. Like I said, New York State doesn't have anything. And there are so many communities outside of New York City that need help. Buffalo is the big one. It has the worst childhood lead poisoning crisis out of any city in the United States. Uh, So Buffalo is really having a big problem. And so this would help this city, that city, as well as so many other will really not just cities, but any area of New York State. Mm -hmm. So we do advocacy days in Albany to try to pass a bill. We'll have letter writing, opportunities for commenting in a hearing, telling your story. There's a million ways to get involved, and we open that up for anyone that wants to do that with us. 
and this is a shameless plug for me to promote the Healthy Homes Working Group, which is where a lot of this work will, will kind of start to, to live here at We Act, and I'll make sure to include information in the show notes for how to join the Healthy Homes Working Group and get involved, including doing some of that advocacy work at the top of the year, which will be really, really awesome. Um, well, that leads us back to the second question, which I'm I'm excited about. Unless, Lonnie, you had something else you wanted to touch on first? No, let's get to that question. <laughs> yes, let's hear about Sonal's experience with ChatGBT and, yeah. and LED. Um, so I was learning about what is chat GPT and I thought the best way to learn was to, um, see how well chat GPT can write, uh, comments <laughs> for a hearing. Um, and so I think a lead hearing must've been coming up and I was writing comments for some reason. I don't know why else I would have had them, but I was just, you know, I think a couple of us were joking that, uh, people in New York city love their dogs and they really cherish dogs. And how do you make people care about issues? Well, maybe we should make them care about like, they think their dog is in trouble. We think we (laughs) might create more political attention. And, um, so I just decided to see what it would be like to have a, a public comment from the perspective of a dog in terms of their concern with lead. And the title was Bark to End Lead Poisoning and it included <laughs> amazing facts about how dogs are also affected by lead, apparently, and they don't like it either. And they also want lead laws. I don't remember the exact facts, but it was amazing. And the chat GPT created so many little puns in there. It was excellent. And it, I did not submit it. For uh, public comment, good, <laughs> I did not, could not take that seriously, well, but um, it was a lot of, of time fun. to comment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so for all of you out there experimenting with ChatGPT, I'm sure you could recreate that scenario if you really wanted to know yes. what's on the other end of that that mm-hmm. submission. So. Just write in, uh, write this from a perspective of a dog. Yes. And uh, it's pretty much done for you. It's the whole point. Yes, I feel like now all the students out there are going to like submit the. Uh, Algebra from the perspective of a dog. <laughs> uh, Charles Dickens from the perspective of a dog. All yeah. homework will be in dog perspective. Now. Unless your professor really likes cats, and then I uh, advise you do it from the perspective of a cat. Yes, it's just going to turn into a, a what's the fan, the fancy feast commercial? Or, no, it's the meow mix. Meow 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 meow. <laughs> yes. meow. That's the whole <laughs> meow to end lead poisoning. Someone's yeah. going to review one of my testimonies coming up and be like, why are there random barking and meowing within your testimony? And I was like, yes. it's from a perspective. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much, Sonal. We appreciate you being on the show. And we, uh, I'm sure we'll have to make it a little bit sooner, but we don't have to go 10 months again before we have you back on. Yes. So, so thank you so much. To. And uh, yeah, we'll have you back again soon. Thanks, guys. Happy Thanks. to be here. My name's Matthew Shashir. I'm an attorney emeritus, which I guess is a fancy way of saying I'm, I still work in some capacity at a community group called Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation, but as an unpaid volunteer now, which is how I wanted it. I was involved in environmental issues from a, a, a young age and as well in racial justice issues from a young age. As a child, when I was seven, my parents actually had me out leafleting in a suburban community for open housing, fair housing, which I thought was fun because I got to play postman and stick flyers in people's houses. And I couldn't understand why people reacted so strangely to the content of what I was handing out. But in my 20s, I was very heavily involved in the uh, anti-nuclear movement, particularly around uh, nuclear power generation and became 
somewhat infamous or famous or whatever for uh, a number of arrests at the Shoreham nuclear plant out in Long Island, which uh, caused me to be exposed to a lot of lawyers. And um, uh, I was beginning to think about how I could be more effective in assisting movements in trying to promote social change and uh, decided to get a law degree. Not so much that I wanted to be a litigator, but I just wanted to have those that kind of free-floating credential you have when you have ESQ after your name <laughs> that lets you go and present on subjects where you really have no formal substantive academic training, but somehow people let you get away with it because you're a lawyer. Um, (laughs) So I was in the first class of uh, City University of New York Law School, whose mission was law for uh, uh, social justice. And um, I started working in uh, a legal services office in in, uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, back before Williamsburg became a trendy place. (laughs) But they had a lot of environmental issues there, and I was working with community groups there, and I love that work, but I was recruited back around 1990 to be uh, the first attorney in a project at the Center for Constitutional Rights on environmental justice back at a time when no one was talking about environmental justice. And uh, the connection to WE Act for me is long because the person who pushed this idea at that agency uh, was Vernice Miller, who was one of the founders of WE Act, and that put me in touch with her and Peggy Shepard and others. And I began working on a, a variety of cases around uh, environmental justice, uh, some down in, in uh, Louisiana and so forth. I found the model, however, of that uh, organization really didn't, wasn't a good fit for me because it was not per se really connected to grassroots organizing on the ground. We sort of, I kind of felt helicoptered into places and tried to come up with some legal strategy. But, you know, I think organizing is nine-tenths of of the effort on these kinds of issues. So this is how I got into lead, because a a friend of mine who's since passed away uh, named Richard Rivera um, had been counsel to the New York City Coalition to end lead poisoning in the 80s. He called me up one day about something that he read in the paper about the fact that the city was sandblasting really high content, lead content paint off the Williamsburg Bridge. And it was kind of raining down on the Lower East Side. And then when people complained there, uh, the city stopped and went over the other side and kept going. And they said, why are you doing it here? And they said, well, no one's complained yet. And (laughs) uh, we brought a a lawsuit challenging the city's actions on the basis that they had come up with a protocol for how they were doing this work without doing an environmental review, which we thought was required by state law because it was a policy. And we won that lawsuit. It went up on appeal. It was affirmed. And it required, at the end of the day, a, a major change in the way the city was was deletting its uh, elevated transportation infrastructure, which is covered with lead paint because lead was a good preservative, but um, they needed to get rid of it. So you see modern lead abatement on bridges going on. They're surrounded with kind of like a, a Cristo <laughs> shrink wrap, you know, with, with negative air pressure and all kinds of stuff. And 
from there, I, I, I had reached out to an attorney I knew at Bronx Legal Services named Lucy Billings, who had been doing work uh, about the city's issues around lead poisoning and housing and had started a, a class action lawsuit against the city back in 1985. And uh, I needed her expertise to work on this case. So we worked as co-counsel. And then around the end of 94, she invited me to come work with her. And so I was excited by that opportunity and came to work at Bronx Legal Services with her. About a year and a half later, she decided to run for judge and kind of dropped all this stuff into my lap. And uh, we ended up taking the project to Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation in 95 because uh, a prior iteration of right-wing Congress <laughs> in, in the 90s um, basically passed all kinds of restrictions on what uh, legal services programs could do with if they had any federal money involved and they couldn't bring class actions and they couldn't challenge um, you know, welfare reform that the Clinton administration was pushing through and all kinds of stuff. So we had to find a different group to do this work. I ended up finding a home for our project at Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation, which turned out to be really an ideal fit. At first, I didn't think it would be, but because because it was really a community-based organization, and I was sort of on my side project doing this work around uh, lead poisoning prevention policy reform, but it was very heavily guided out of the experiences and the needs of the people in the community who were coming in as clients. And so it wasn't so much as I described before about helicoptering in and saying, well, we have the answers. It was seeing what happened to our clients, what went wrong, why their kids got poisoned, why landlords failed them, why the city failed them, why the state failed them, why the federal government failed them, and trying to come up with solutions for those in a variety of ways. And that was, a for me, a, a, a reason why I stayed there for so long until I basically retired last year. Wow. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear this kind of really long trajectory of how, how you ended up yeah. in, in, the, in the role that you're in now and doing the work and, yeah, yeah. and kind of being uh, in, in a new stage of it now very recently. And what I find interesting, and we were talking, we've, we've had conversations about this before, that outside of the folks that work on the issue of lead and or folks that have really intimately experienced the consequences of lead exposure, a lot of people are unaware of it and or don't see it, at, don't don't know that it's still a thing. For you, you know, up to the point when you actually started to, to work on lead as an issue professionally, how much were you aware of, of lead paint being, you know, uh, an issue in terms of an exposure for folks and, and it being a real like environmental health issue? <laughs> Probably not mm. a great deal. I mean, I knew it was out there. But, you know, the, 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 the paradigm for the way people looked at, at lead exposure was, you know, it's an urban problem. It's kids picking up paint chips and sticking in their mouths and chewing on it. It's and the kid's fault, basically. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> a kid, or their parents. It's bad parenting. You know, and part of that, too, is a reflection of, of the way the science on this has evolved. I mean, lead is lead is, a, is a, a toxic substance that we've known is toxic to human beings for thousands of years. Thousands. 
there was a, a French scientist named Matthew Joseph, which is my first two names, Orfila, who was considered to be the founder of mo the modern science of toxicology. And he wrote a, a little over 200 years ago, he, he wrote a paper and he said, you know, of all the subjects out there that are toxic, he says, there have been more papers and more studies on lead than any other thing combined. <laughs> this is 200 years ago. So we knew this stuff was toxic a long, long time ago. But the subtlety of how it affects people and, and the, the, the pathways for exposure were not well understood at the beginning and are only still being analyzed in terms of, you know, how does the lead get there? How does the lead get into the body and what does lead do to people? You know, it was early on thought that this was primarily an occupational disease from people who worked in lead smelters, painters, and people who worked in setting type or whatever. And it was only at the beginning, that the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, that some awareness began to appear in the, the scientific literature about the fact that paint and old paint was poisoning children. Uh, the first papers on this came from Australia, actually, from doctors who were treating lead-poisoned children in the state of Queensland, which is in the tropical part of Australia, where because of the temperatures, kids spent a lot of time during the middle of the day hanging out on the front porch because it was cool and shady. And the old paint there was peeling off and the kids were ingesting it somehow and they're getting lead poisoned. So, you know, there were some early papers on the subject, but we kept producing and using lead-based paint in the United States all the way through 1978. Um, it was banned in most industrialized countries by 1920, but not here. And there was, I think, quite a lot of denial, <laughs> mostly funded by the lead industry to say that, you know, this is, this is not only not dangerous, it's in fact the best thing you can use in your home. It's safe and sanitary. And there are all kinds of papers on this. And, and, and you can see, uh, if you hunt around the web, you can see some of the, the advertising that was used where it was recommended as the safe and sanitary and modern substance to use you know, use it in schools and so forth because, you know, it, it was easy to clean. You know, the little kids put their hands all over it and uh, you could just clean it off with a rag and it would be, you'd be good to go. And there was a, a fairly uh, strong sense, even until the late 80s, that, that the problem of lead poisoning was largely as, as a result of the use of tetraethyl lead in gasoline which uh, began to be phased out in the 70s, not because, not because of this concern over lead as a toxin so much as that's when they started to use catalytic converters on cars to control smog. And it turns out that leaded gasoline would destroy them in a few hundred years, in a few hundred miles. So they started requiring cars to use uh, unleaded fuel. And uh, as a result, urban lead levels did go down significantly you know, in, in among children who lived in densely populated areas with a lot of traffic. And people thought it was a lot was coming from lead in the solder in food cans and maybe from the water. But paint was not really suspected as the main source of lead poisoning, or at least uh, 
not to the prominence it had. And part of it was just not a clear understanding of the mechanisms by how lead was uh, became, as I would say, bioavailable um, in in a child's environment and ingested and taken up into the body. And in the 80s and in the 90s, there started to be much more focus on how that actually worked, you know, and it was began to be understood that it was really not so much whether there was paint on the wall, but whether that paint got into a condition that it could be absorbed and primarily um, through dust. It's now understood that vanishingly small quantities of lead dust can have very significant adverse impacts on children. The first standards that finally came out about lead dust required that it defined a hazard and required cleaning to get lead dust on floors, for example, to a standard that was uh, 100 micrograms per square foot, which is a meaningless number to the listener. But I can describe that as basically uh, a particle of, of a coffee sweetener, which is a particle smaller than a grain of sugar. That's about 100 micrograms. So if you can, in your mind, take that little particle and crush it and spread it evenly across the area of basically a floor tile, a, a, a square foot. That's the level that was set in the around 2000 as the, the maximum that was permissible. And that was based upon studies that found that, you know, only a small percentage of children exposed at that level would have blood lead levels that were greater than what was considered to be lead poisoning at that point. Since then, um, the levels that we consider to be of concern in terms of blood lead in children has significantly been tightened. The technology for cleaning and testing uh, lead dust has improved dramatically. So right now, we're now in New York City, we're down at a standard of five micrograms per square foot. So my little particle of sweetener has now been divided into 20 parts per square foot. It's like you just can't see something like that. So, you know, you think about that microscopic quantity of dust, and then you think about the, the older conception that it was like, well, it's these big paint chips that kids are picking up and eating, you know, but really it's this, it's this fine dust that you can't even see, you know. Unfortunately, the technology and the practices for dealing with lead-based paint and lead-based paint hazards really weren't there at the beginning. And they've changed a great deal as a result of a lot of advocacy and a lot of science. That's a really interesting overview because as you were, were talking about the different kind of stages and when there was some type of awareness or involvement by other folks and that weren't just advocates um, like yourself, when would, when would you say that government started to actually pay attention and you know, what was that kind of that moment or were there moments where government actually decided to step in and try to address this issue alongside uh, advocates and lawyers? Well, I guess l let me break it down into the, the three buckets, the federal, state and local. The federal evolution around around lead hazards and lead control has started around 19 in the early 70s, but it's. It has not been greatly effective, in my opinion, because in a large, to a large extent, because the federal government doesn't really regulate private housing, which is where 
99% of the lead poisoning takes place despite the kind of sometimes popular conception that it's public housing is the problem and it's really not. It's mostly private housing. But there's there's really little that the federal government does that regulates private housing. You know, there's just no federal role in that. There has been some input from the feds, for example, if they're providing Section 8 subsidies for private housing, then they have certain mandates and so on. But what the feds have done is come up with a variety of standards about, you know, defining hazards, defining um, exposure, providing the funding for research that develop the tools for measuring um, lead dust, lead in paint, the, the devices that would could be utilized to inspect a home, coming up with standards for things like risk assessment and safe work practice and so on. That's been that's been the major federal role and a couple of other pieces that uh, are probably not worth my going into in, in the time we have here. But it's it's largely a very indirect role. I mean, there's nothing in federal law that what's going to require an average um, landlord in an average town to do anything to prevent children from being lead poisoned. On a state level, New York was a little ahead of the curve. It banned the application of what was considered to be lead paint in 1970, which was uh, eight years before the feds largely did that. But it's really a conundrum. I mean, New York has the largest number of lead poisoned children and the largest stock of older housing with lead-based paint in the country. And yet, with the exception of a few communities, uh, starting with New York and then Rochester and recently Syracuse, in most of the state of New York, there are no regulations and laws and remedies to assist uh, a tenant living in a rental property where there's lead hazards, other than waiting till your child gets lead poison and then the health department comes in and says, oh, we've got a problem here. Of course, the downside is that once a child's lead poison, the injuries are permanent. So it's kind of a really backwards way to look for safe housing. It's kind of using the children as, as guinea pigs to find out if there's lead there <laughs> when there's actually devices you can test. So. It's it's unfortunate. I mean, there have been attempts over many decades to push for New York to have some kind of state policies on eliminating lead poisoning out of kind of collective activism. Uh, we did push the state to come up with some programs where they focused on uh, what were considered to be communities of concern, the, the areas in the state that had the highest lead poisoning and try to come in with some resources to help clean up the housing. And most recently, the, the legislature passed some amendments to the state public health law that's going to require that all housing in these communities of concern uh, eliminate lead hazards. But what that's going to look like, we don't know, because they didn't define what a lead hazard is. So that's going to be the next big battle in the regulatory process. What do you mean by a lead hazard? New York City has, on the other hand, has been one of the leaders in this, at least on on paper in terms of a, a, a government role. But, you know, there's always a, an awfully big disconnect between what the law says and how things actually play out. New York City banned the, the application of lead-based paint in homes in 1960. 
Um, so it was one of the first jurisdictions in the country. I think Baltimore was a little earlier, 1954. But so at least the the, the continued uh, accumulation of this toxic substance in homes was going to end, although there's certainly lots of evidence that that lead paint continued to be used in New York City even after 1960. It was sold here in violation of the law. And eventually, it was also banned to use in, in schools. But in violation of the New York City's own laws, for example, the, the old Board of Education continued to use industrial grade lead paint in schools until about 1980. But that was the first, that was the first step. And that's what we, we called uh, – and, and, and the, the health code was also amended to require the health department to go in and do an environmental inspection in homes where a child became lead poisoned. This is what we call secondary prevention. As I was saying before, it's using the, the kids to test whether there's lead there. But, you know, the, the damage from lead poisoning is essentially irreversible in children. The, the, the developmental um, delays are, are never really restored. In, in the early days, the government would the, – the health department would issue an order telling the landlord, go fix it. And then the landlord would fold its arms and do nothing. So in 1970, the city passed a, a law that said if the landlord is ordered to fix it and doesn't do it, then the uh, health department has to uh, send this over to the what's now known as the Department of Housing Preservation Development, HPD. It had a different name back then. But that's the city's main code, housing code enforcement agent says, you go and fix it because we need to do something. This kid's in a hazardous environment. We can't leave them staying there. But again, this was all the secondary model. In 1982, um, in part because of, of activism that started in the late 60s and uh, has kind of continued unabated through the present, the city council uh, under passed a bill with a prime sponsor being uh, uh, the late council member Stanley Michaels, who later became a, a board member at, at WEACT, called Local Law 1, of became Local Law 1 of 1983. Not to conf be confused with the current law, which is also called Local Law 1, but it's just a matter of chance that that happened. And Local Law 1 was not very long. It was five paragraphs. And it basically said, if you have children under the age of seven in a rental property in a multiple dwelling in New York, the landlord shall remove or cover the lead paint, period. And it also contained a statutory presumption that if it was peeling, then when HPD came and inspected, they could just presume that it was lead paint unless the landlord tested on their own and proved that it wasn't. So on, on paper, it looked like a great law. But guess what? Nobody enforced it. I mean, the city was writing. I, I've, done, I've done a chart of this, and I don't remember the numbers exactly, but they were issuing maybe 25, 30 violations a year for violating this law, where we knew there are hundreds of thousands of units with children under seven with lead-based paint. So in 1985, an organization was formed called the New York City Coalition on Lead Poisoning, led by parents of lead-poisoned children, uh, health advocates from places like Montefiore Medical Center, housing advocates. And they brought a lawsuit represented by uh, my former colleague Lucy Billings and others against the city called 
a New York City coalition and led poisoning versus Koch. And the, the goal of that lawsuit was to get adequate, timely and safe enforcement of the law that on paper looked like it was should end the lead poisoning problem, but wasn't. And I'll just give you a sense of how this worked back in the day. I mean, if to get HPD to write a violation was a process because you had to call and complain and you specifically had to say, you know, I have a concern because there's peeling paint and I have a child under the age of seven and blah, 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 blah. And maybe HPD would show up at some point, who knows when, and then they would write a violation. So listeners may think, oh, when you get a violation issued by HPD, that means someone does something, just like if you get, say, a parking ticket or something like that. If you don't pay it, then they'll come and impound your car. No, it doesn't work like that at all. Basically, uh, the violations can just sit there forever uh, unless the tenant or the agency takes some more affirmative action, usually by bringing a case in housing court to try to get a judge to order the landlord to do something. And the agency itself didn't have the resources to bring a lot of these cases and basically didn't bring any of them. And tenants rarely had the either the, the skills or the legal assistance or the stamina to go to court 400 times and try to get through all the adjournments and eventually get an order from the judge telling the landlord to do it. And even then, the landlord might just ignore it. So then you have to keep going back to court. So we would encounter these situations that were just so problematic. Uh, and I'll give you an example. One of, one of my uh, former clients who, in a long and interesting twist of, of fate, is now state senator for this area named Cordell Clear, she had uh, a lot of peeling paint in her home after there was a fire and there was water damage, and she called uh, HPD because of the damage in her apartment. She didn't know anything about lead, but her kid was about, I don't know, six months old or something like that, was not lead poisoned at that time because we have the medical records. And HPD came in and saw peeling paint um, and wrote up, fix the peeling paint, but they didn't write the violation as lead paint. And as they later explained, and when we sued them, they said, well, the tenant didn't complain about lead paint, so we didn't write it up as lead paint. And so then the landlord had the super come in with a paint scraper and a power sander or whatever and try to fix the lead, the paint, the paint, which no one was talking about as being lead, and made a big mess. And then a few months later, her child was tested and found to be highly lead poisoned. Guess what? Because of the unsafe work that was done. And so now the health department came in and said, oh, Houston, we've got a problem here. <laughs> this place is full of lead paint. So we thought something would happen then, but nothing happened then. Um, the family was moved to a, a shelter at, at Montefiore Medical Center, a safe house, and they were there for a, a well over a year, if I recall correctly, while we spent enormous amounts of time in court trying to get someone to do something. And eventually, we got a judge to order the city to go in and fix it, which the city was resistant to doing. And this was like the typical tragedy that would happen. You know, the law was on the books, but no one would do anything to make it enforceable. And it was a system that was not accessible to, to parents. And as now Senator Clear would say, she says, you know, I didn't know anything about lead. 
you know, but that wasn't my job. I mean, the city was coming in inspecting. How come they didn't recognize that this is an old house and there was a kid there and that all this peeling paint was, you know, potentially incredibly toxic? They're the ones who screwed up and eventually my kid got lead poisoned. And we had so many cases like this that were kind of boiling up from our client intake. And that's why I said, like, the model for me of working in a legal services office really helped us kind of capture what was not working. So one of the one of the early uh, decisions we won in this class action was a requirement that uh, one of the judges said issued saying, you know, it's not enough to tell the, the landlord remove the lead paint if you don't tell them how to do it safely and ordered the city to write regulations about safe work practices. Which, in a, in a way, when I look back on this, there really wasn't a lot of authority for the judge to do it, but it was the right thing to do. And the city dragged its heels over that. And we had to take the city back to court multiple times on this. In fact, the, the city was held in contempt of court no less than four times <laughs> over various aspects of the, of the court's orders to carry out various mandates Um the last being in 1999, where the judge threatened to put the HPD commissioner in jail within 30 days if they didn't start complying. You know, so we kept winning all these victories in court, but we weren't really getting anywhere in, in terms of changing the game on the ground. So we had this kind of failure of public public law, of, of the 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 of regulation really working to protect kids. And the other side of the equation is what I call private law. In other words, lawsuits brought by private actors for lead poisoning cases, brought by victims of lead poisoning who would sue their landlords. And there was a major decision in 1995 called Juarez versus Wavecrest Management. And that was from the High Court of New York. And the, the, the Juarez case it was a case where a kid was lead poison. And the defense propounded by the defendants in that case was, yeah, there's this law, but we didn't know there was lead. And unless the city first inspects our, our, our private rental dwelling and tells us there's lead, we have no obligation to do anything about lead. And to some extent, that might might sound kind of off the wall, but the history of the development of real property law in this country comes from England. And the traditional, what they call common law concept was that if you lease a pro piece of property to somebody, you, know, you lease the farm to the farmer, once, once it's leased, the landlord no longer has access to the property. In fact, can't enter it. Otherwise, it would be trespassing. The owner still owns the property, but the control of the property is completely in the hands of the person who's leased it. So traditionally, um, that defense worked. In fact, it still worked um, in the rest of the state for many years and many other jurisdictions because the landlord would say, you know, you can't have, make me liable for poisoning someone or for any kind of contact, uh, uh, bad conduct, unless I had notice of the hazard. You know, I mean, yes, I had a duty to act, but only once I knew there was something that I needed to fix. You know, right? And 
we, meaning uh, the New York City Coalition on Lead Poisoning, put in a friend of the court brief in on this, signed on to by many, many other organizations, including We Act, including many legislators from the city council and so forth, saying this is just backwards, you know, because this is in essence creates a, an incentive for landlords not to look for lead hazards because once they look for it, then they're on notice and they're going to have to do something. And what the what the Court of Appeals did in this decision is they said, look, yes, there's this common law concept that owners don't have access, but the housing code in New York is very broad. And one of its provisions says that landlords have not only a right, but a, a duty to enter the premises at reasonable times to see whether it's in compliance with the housing code. And the lead law is part of the housing code. So no, you can't use that defense here. If you know there's children there um, under the age of seven, you have an obligation to take reasonable measures to make sure they're not poisoned. This created an enormous um, uproar in the real estate industry because up till then, proving these kinds of lead poisoning cases was very difficult because the landlord would always say, oh, I don't know. I didn't know anything. Now, those cases kind of changed. It was really just a question of, um, you know, was the child poisoned? And if so, how much is the damage going to be? You know, proving the landlord's liability once we established there was lead and the landlord didn't take reasonable steps to deal with it was no longer an issue that had to be fought over. So, by the late 90s, you had two converging forces coming down on city government. You had the, the administration under a guy named Rudolph Giuliani, the mayor, so-called law and order mayor whose housing commissioner was repeatedly held in contempt of court for not enforcing the lead law. And they were getting tired of this. And you had the real estate industry where landlords left and right were being you know, sued and held accountable for damages for lead poison kids. And the, the, the upshot of this was the, the passage by the city council in basically about two or three weeks over the protests of anyone who had any intelligence about, about, how, about lead hazards, the passage of a law called Local Law 38 of 1999, pushed by then Speaker Peter Vallone, that just drastically cut back on the extent of of the lead poisoning prevention laws. It was basically a gift to the landlords. It protected landlords against liability. It protected the city because the city no longer had to enforce such a broad law. So what did we do? We sued over that. We dusted off. That's probably a poor metaphor, but um, used the same state environmental Quality Review Act to say, you know, the city just made policy over lead dust, didn't even talk about lead dust, didn't analyze it. They needed to. And the failure to comply with the state law that requires environmental review when you're making policy that can affect the environment, you know, is a failure. And it was kind of the argument we had used in the Williamsburg Bridge case a number of years before. And it was kind of an interesting and creative thing to do. I, I can't get, take credit for coming up with a, a colleague of mine named Suzanne Matei brainstormed this out. But, but the issue was, you know, nobody thinks of the indoor environment as quote unquote environment. Like we think about environment as it's like trees and parks and mountains and streams. But the reality is the indoor environment is where we spend 
90, 95% of our time. And that environment can be very toxic. So that was one of the threshold issues was, well, is the inside of a house, is that environment, is that covered by the law? That case went all the way up the court system, all the way up to the High Court of New York, the Court of Appeals. And in 2003, the court agreed and struck down the Peter Valone Local Law 38, saying there had been ineffective environmental review. Now we're back to Local Law 1 of 1983 again. But, you know, we, we understood well at that point that this was just buying us more time, but we really needed to come up with a much more comprehensive way to approach this. We had all these different orders from the court. We had learned an awful lot from our clients about all the ways that Local Law 1 hadn't worked. And we also started thinking about changing the dynamic a little bit because the thinking that had gone into Local Law, the first Local Law 1 and the thinking in general among many advocates was the only way to deal with lead paint is you need to completely remove all of it. And we got enormous pushback from that in the 90s because, you know, as people pointed out, doing that in every home in New York City is going to cost a fortune, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars. Who's got where are the resources for that going to come from? And even with safe work practices, if they were followed, maybe it wouldn't create hazards. But if it was not done right and you abated improperly, you actually made the problem worse because you take all that lead paint and without proper environmental controls, you get a lot of lead dust all over the place. And the the Juarez case had kind of pointed us in an interesting direction because the court said this is not an, a, a strict liability statute. They said it doesn't it, – it, it's a statute of reasonableness. They said, you know, a landlord has to show they took reasonable steps under the circumstances to keep kids from being poisoned. So we said, you know, why don't we try to reframe the whole way that the city goes about this? The landlords are saying, don't make us abate all the lead paint. We know how to manage it. And we said, fine. Here's what the law said. The law had a long preamble where it said the city council, I'm kind of quoting almost from memory, the city council recognizes that given the diversity of housing stock in New York, we cannot legislate a single maintenance practice and standard for every housing unit in New York because the housing is so varied. You know, and this, but what we do think is that there is sufficient information out there now from federal guidance and various people in the field to make, to allow owners to make reasonable um, decisions about how to manage lead based paint if they're not abating all of it. But it also said you can't sift being that there could be no peeling paint and that owners. Then when we were trying to deal with the problem in the Juarez case that the owner said, well, I didn't necessarily know there were children in the home. And says, well, then you have to affirmatively find out if there are children in the home. And if you do, then you must inspect the dwelling at least once a year and more often as necessary to make sure it's safe. So we're really taking the model from the Juarez case and putting it right into statute. If you don't want to take it all out, Find out if there's kids there. Go and inspect it. If you think you can manage the, the, the dwelling without taking all the lead paint, that's on you. But you need to make sure that it's at all times safe. Secondly, it built in specific requirements for safe work practices. 
that the people who anybody who's disturbing paint that has led or if you don't know if it's led, you presume it's led, had to have a certain level of training, had to use certain work practices, and they had to do testing with a third party at the end of the job to make sure that the place was cleaned up and there was no lead dust there. That was the second piece of it. The third piece was to try to go after what everyone understood being the highest risk surfaces that even if intact could create lead dust. And that's what we call friction surfaces, the lead paint on a door frame or a window frame. Because even if the paint wasn't peeling every time you open that window, the surfaces could abrade and create lead dust. The original plan for what became Local Law 1 of 2004 was this was going to be done in housing by the year 2007, I think. And there was huge pushback from the Bloomberg administration, which said, oh, we're going to veto the law if you don't make it weaker. In the end, they vetoed it anyway, um, to say, well, we'll do this at vacancy because then it's safer to do it. No one's in the home. Da, 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 and it's eventually going to get rid of all the lead on friction surfaces. But then we also built in lots of very specific mandates to deal with the problems what we'd found from our clients. So one of the requirements is that if HPD goes into someone's home, they has to ask, are there children here, young children here? If the answer to that is yes, then HPD has to do an inspection for lead, regardless of whether the tenant had called to complain about heat or a leaky faucet or something. That alone increased the number of violations HPD issued in its first year of the law by like four or 500%. So you know, we had lost all these opportunities to do good public health by, you know, having when HPD was inspecting people's homes by they were just ignoring this obvious public health hazard. I mean, it's funny at a at a hearing a, a year or so later that one of the assistant HPD commissioners who we greatly disliked was complaining. He says, the law is not working. We have four or five hundred percent more lead violations than we did before. And it's like, Harold, <laughs> they were all there. You're just finding them. It's not like all of a sudden the problem got worse. You're just looking for them, right? So, and and likewise, if you call 311 to complain about conditions in your apartment, the operators are required to ask, do you have any kids? Are they, How old are they? Okay. Do you have any peeling paint? Boom. It turns into a lead inspection. So we did a better job of, of inspecting for it. And then we also tried to address this problem of like these violations would just get issued and then just sit there like a dead log for years until someone did something. So it built into the law a series of timetables. It's like HPD has to inspect within 10 days of a complaint for that could be led. They have to issue a violation within 10 days. And if the landlord doesn't fix it within a certain period of time, then the city has to come in and fix it. And then they can build a landlord or put a lien on the building or whatever. But one thing we didn't want is for them to find these violations and then for them to just sit there forever. I mean, that was like completely defeating the purpose. Anyway, that was that was in large part the genesis and the, the framework of Local Law 1 of 2004. It was not anymore a full abatement statute, but it did mandate that housing be maintained safe at all times. So there was still the liability attached if you didn't meet these standards. And there was a requirement that there be timely enforcement by the city and that there be safe work practices. So we thought we, our work would be done, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> Here we are on this podcast talking about it right now. Right. Yeah. So given all those things that you kind of mentioned, now, now we're at the stage where, you know, 
Local Law One of two thousand four exists. It's on the books, and you know, like like we said, we're still working on on this issue of lead exposure. It, as as concisely as you can put it, what would you say is kind of uh, the landscape that we sit in now in terms of what we're still advocating for? What are some of what what are some of like maybe the top one or or yeah. two things that you feel like we are still trying to address to right. really get rid of this issue of childhood lead exposure in New yeah. York? Well, I mean, it, you know, I can I can do the glass half full or half empty framework here. I mean, the reality is 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 the numbers of children at elevated blood levels has dramatically dropped in New York, far faster in New York City than the rest of the state. How much of that is due to local law one as opposed to other factors like, you know, well, the gentrification that's getting homes remodeled or, you know, other factors? I don't know. But it's certainly aspects of it have worked better. I mean, we in legal services attorneys, we used to have to go to these court forever and try to fight it out. I don't do those cases anymore. I, I wrote myself out of the business of having to take landlords to court because now the city has to deal with it. So that part of it, I thought, very worked very well. But we began to look at, you know, again, what was happening on the ground. I would ask clients who came into the office, you know, has a landlord inspected your apartment for lead? Because one of the requirements of local law one is not only they inspect it at least once a year, they produce a written report about it, keep that for 10 years, give it to the tenant. No one was doing it. No one had ever seen one of these reports. And the second piece of it was the requirements <coughs> for um, safe work practices. And again, the way that local law one was drafted it was a very broad requirement. It required these safe work practices. Anytime you're doing work that's disturbing lead paint or paint of unknown lead content in a dwelling with young children in it, regardless of what the intent was, regardless of whether the landlord says, I'm coming in here to abate or I'm coming in here to redecorate, the dust doesn't know the difference. It, it poisons a child just as effectively, regardless of the intent. You may think his intent sounds like a really strange term, but on federal law, there are very strict requirements about lead abatement in the safe work practices you have to use. But those only apply if a landlord is intending to do permanent removal and correction of lead paint. If you call it something else, then you don't have to use these safe work practices. So it's a totally state of mind requirement. But New York City, we kind of sidestepped that. You know, we said, no, you have to do this. You have to use qualified people. You have to do safe uh, uh, dust wipe tests afterwards. And those results have to be disclosed to the tenant. And those are paper records that have to be disclosed and kept and provided to incoming tenants. None of that seemed to be happening. We also, you know, began to suspect and, and looked at, you know, what, what is the city doing to enforce any of these things? Is the city, for example, going after landlords who fail to do these annual inspections? Because, I mean, we thought that was somewhat of a no-brainer. I mean, the city only has a few hundred inspectors. There's no way the city can inspect the hundreds of thousands of units of older housing stock with kids in them in New York. The city can't do that and it shouldn't even be the city's job, you know, that we – that ends up becoming a public responsibility. It should be the owner's responsibility, right? We put it into the law. You inspect your dwelling. Or was the city doing anything about enforcing this requirement that at vacancy, these friction surfaces be abated? Well, I started looking at the data on this and um, 
Reuters news organization as well did their study and looked at the the records of uh, violations issued by HPD. And of course, now these days we have like this just massive amount of data you can look at online that's, you know, you can really do some amazing analysis on it. And we found like the city in the first 15 years after local law 104 went into effect had issued maybe two or three violations for failing to do annual inspections and two or three violations for failing to do uh, abatement at vacancy. And coincidentally, all of those happened to be cases where I had taken the landlord in the city to court. And as I you know, indicated, at some point I wanted to retire and I felt like I couldn't be the only one enforcing local law. One, the city had to enforce it. It's their law. So the, the various members of the coalition came together and put out a, a report um, around nine, 2019 or so called uh, uh, Lead Loopholes. Uh, we Act was one of the groups on that and uh, Northern Manhattan and others. And it, it kind of put together our analysis about like, look, these are the things that are working on local law one, but these are the things that are not. And we need to tighten this. We need, if HPD is going to take this sort of hands-off approach, then we're going to have to keep tinkering with the law and spell it out. Like you must take certain steps to make sure the law is enforced. So a, a number of amendments came out in the last few years that um, were largely drafted by the advocates to try to address this. For example, they started requiring this, the, the city had to uh, audit a certain number of landlords each year to find out what are they doing about annual inspections. And guess what? They discovered that no one was doing it. So they started issuing lots of violations for it. You know, the city had to start figuring out a way to figure out are landlords doing these these required abatements of friction surfaces at at vacancy. And we got pushback from HPD about this. They said, well, how do we know? Because that was only a requirement if there's been a change of tenancy after the law went into effect in 04. But we don't know when the tenants moved in. I said, well, why don't you ask them when you inspect? Oh, so we wrote that into the statute as well, that when HPD goes in, one of the things they have to do when they're doing inspection is ask if the family moved in after August 3rd of 2004. And if the answer is yes, then all those friction surfaces should have been abated. So the city will have to test those surfaces too. And if there's lead there, then they have to issue a violation for that. It, you know, it didn't seem like rocket science, but you know, sometimes it's dealing with a you know, it feels like you're dealing with a recalcitrant trial that you have to kind of really spell this thing out in detail. You know, and we've been attempting to improve the the safe work practices enforcement. You know, one, one of the issues that we've long struggled with around this, the, the, the dilemma of lead uh, poisoning in New York, is the fact that it tended to be divided amongst various agencies that didn't necessarily interact particularly well with each other and would blame each other for the failures as opposed to like coming together in a, uh, you know, as I think the term we use these days is breaking down the silos and come up with a, a cohesive plan for dealing with this. And one of the agencies is the Department of Buildings, which doesn't do housing code enforcement, but they do have the responsibility for issuing construction permits when you're doing renovation. And those permits, for example, require that the applicant indicate whether there's asbestos in the property, and if so, what are you doing about it? And we kept saying, well, why not ask them about lead, too? 
well, we don't want to do that because that's 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 not our department. And we said, well, it should be. So one of the changes we got in is that if you apply for a permit to do construction, you have to indicate is this a property that that may have lead paint or does have lead paint, and and if so. You know, what are you doing to make sure the people who are doing the work are qualified to do this? What measures are you taking to protect the tenants? And then we also gave uh, the Department of Buildings the ability and the authority to issue stop work orders if their inspectors saw unsafe work going on. Because up till then, they said, well, that's not our department. That's the health department or HPD, but don't look to us. So, again, we've been trying to figure out how to, like, really effectively use these um, agencies to work together more closely. Yeah. If anything I've taken away from, from all the things that you've kind of shared with us today is that this issue, what seems like should be a pretty straightforward issue of preventing childhood lead exposure, you know, paint, you know, it seems straightforward, is incredibly, you know, complex and maybe to some extent shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be as complicated as it is if, if kind of folks did the things that were seemingly obvious about asking these questions that you had to require them yeah. to ask and yeah. through all this process. But it kind of indicates to me that, you know, there is a, a reason for people to be paying attention to, to know what they can expect and what they should be expecting and, and making sure that the agencies uh, and landlords that are supposed to be doing this work, that they're keeping a close eye because it seems like any chance that anyone has gotten to not do the work of, you know, testing and reporting and abating, they've it hasn't gotten done until it's been kind of under the microscope of, of, of surveillance. So all the more reason for folks to kind of really be paying attention, especially if they personally have, have children or know people who have children. And I find that, you know, very, very motivating for folks who are, who are in the city and who have maybe haven't been paying attention, who maybe feel like, oh, wow, maybe maybe I should be paying attention to this. So, uh, Lonnie, other uh, thoughts that you had? I know that we're kind of getting near the end of our time, so I wanted to start kind of hearing some of our kind of closing thoughts, if you will. Yeah, I've, I've you know, working with uh, the New York City Coalition to End Lead Poisoning so far since I've been here at WEAC, I've heard parts of these different things, right? These different moments in time in various in various ways. But it's very interesting to kind of just sit and hear the entire story, almost kind of start to where we are where we're now, not the finish because it's not over. But one of my questions is kind of going into this, it seems like this is a, an issue that it's, it's almost like to solve it is like pulling teeth with someone's bare hands. And my question to you is, and I don't know if you can answer this in a certain way, who's the villain in this story? Because it seems like there's a, just a lot of people, a lot of things going on. But who who's really to to blame if there if there is someone to blame? Well, I mean, I, 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 Maybe on the macro level, you could blame the, the the paint industry and the lead industry, which this is one of these things like asbestos or cigarettes. It's like it was well known within the industry that this was really toxic, and yet they kept selling this stuff. And there have been attempts in, in, in a lot of jurisdictions to try to sue and hold accountable the various paint companies and um, for for their role in this. Those, including in New York City, um, and those efforts largely failed for reasons that are too complex to get into in the time we have. Um, there has been some successful litigation recently in in California against them, but you know, at the end of the day, where are you going to find the resources to deal with this from 
uh, is is the the bigger issue. But on on a local level, you know, one of the things we we always kept thinking when we were drafting local law one of oh four is like, look, there are probably three or four hundred thousand units of older housing stock with rental housing with with kids and young ki- kids them, but they're not all being lead poisoned. Obviously, most landlords understand how to maintain their property and not poison their occupants. So we had to think about, you know, what, how do you draft a law that kind of separates out the good landlords and the bad landlords, you know, and, you know, you need to have a regime that says, fine, if you take care of your property, you're off the hook. But if you're not, then the book gets thrown at you deal, you know, to, for your failures to prevent the kids from being lead poison. You know, so certainly the the real estate industry was one of our biggest antagonists in in the fights at the city council level. I mean, the idea, the very idea that issues in public health policy or public ho- or housing policy could be promulgated based upon the needs and interests of basically poor people. Because <laughs> it's, you know, the reality is, is the kids who are being affected are, you know, predominantly, you know, poor kids of color, they're not usually the ones who make public policy in New York. You know, they don't give to PAC funds. They don't vote. But early on, I I learned the maxim from a a colleague. He says, you know, there's only two things politicians understand, money and pain. And (laughs) the kids, you know, our clients weren't the ones who were going to be paying the the legislators for their reelections. But we did focus a lot on the pain. And we tried to make this an issue that um, really affected the electability of political office holders in New York City. I mean, the the the, the city council election and the, the in in two thousand one, um, in the aftermath of the Peter Valone bill, for example, all kinds of people ran for city council, for mayor, for borough president, and would slam their opponents for having voted to poison children. Um, you know, for having sponsored the Valone Law. And we kind of went along for the ride. It was like, you know, I'd be contacted, you know, how did this person vote? And it's like, well, they voted for the Valone Law. And, you know, so we kind of turned it into a, you know, a fight of, of, you know, who wants to stand up on this issue and who doesn't. But again, getting back to it, I mean, the real estate industry, you know, had always completely controlled the city council on policy matters. And and I saw the enactment of Local Law 1, which took the creation of an enormous coalition of ad, of ad, actors and advocates from a broad spectrum of, of groups. I mean, not just environmental advocates, but public health advocates and housing advocates and racial justice advocates and disability rights advocates and who all looked at this issue and said, and education advocates, this is across cutting issue. I think the other actor in this obviously is government, but you know, it's it's I think always tempting to to kind of think of government as a monolith and it's not. You know, it's it's complex organizations with lots of people pushing in different directions and you know, I think I think advocates from the outside can make an enormous difference in pushing the people within agencies who want to do the right thing to be able to do it, you know, and to get them the resources they need. And there are a lot of good people in government who are working on this who could not do the work 
that they do had not, you know, the, the actions that advocates took over the years to really push them to do better. Um, they got more funding. They got, they got pushback from, you know, they were able to withstand the people from the budget side of government saying, ah, we don't really need to spend money on this. And it's like, well, yeah, we do because we're going to get sued. I, I named three different actors here. But no, I appreciate that. Yeah. But, but I like that kind of kind of closing out of basically saying like how important advocates are and how people how 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 much they can do and move uh, policymakers. Oh, a- absolutely. And as again, I mean, I came became a lawyer because I was an activist. And I think I think there's a, 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 a real tendency for for lawyers to become uh, so in love with their pen or their word processor and think that, you know, we can write something magical on a piece of paper, a great brief, and things will change. And it's like, that's not how things work at all. It's all about, you know, we can, we can be there and help draft the, manipulate the levers of power by drafting things. But political change rarely happens because people think, you know, in government think it's the right thing to do. It comes because you create the political force where government has to do what it's going to do. And the, the struggle over lead poisoning was very much that, you know, we would win all these battles in court, but we wouldn't get anywhere. You know, we got hammered in 99, you know, when the Valone law went through. So we realized we're not doing the right, the, the kind of organizing we need to do. You know, it's only going to happen by, you know, empowering and, and particularly empowering our clients to figure out how to, uh, to advocate on this and, and create the political will for it to, to go forward. And I can't think of a better plug than that, you know, to direct people into, you know, working with organizations like us, like we act for environmental justice and just getting involved with this work, you know, as, as advocates. So thank you so much, Matthew. Sure. We appreciate your really comprehensive re- review of, of your work and just the landscape of, of the work around lead at the city, state and federal level. So uh, thank you so much for joining us again. And we, we appreciate you making time to be on the show. And, and thanks to WEAC for all its continuing work on on this. The late, great Cecil, Cecil Corbin Mark was uh, one of my colleagues in this early on. And uh, he was right in the room with us back when we were making the final push to get local law one mm-hmm. through. And, you know, we really miss his advocacy, but we're glad to see that WEAC has continued to carry the torch on this. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen on. If you have thoughts about the show, we encourage you to reach out to us with your thoughts and suggestions at podcast at weact.org. We also just launched a new poll where you can tell us what you want to hear about on Uptown Chats next year. So in 2024. For all of our listeners on Spotify, you can access that poll directly in the app. Just go to this show episode, click on the show page, and you can scroll down to the the poll right there. Otherwise, if you listen to this podcast on any other platforms, you can find the poll on our website at weact.org slash podcast. You can also check out We Act on Facebook at We Act for EJ. That's W-E-A-C-T-F-O-R-E-J. Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at We Act for EJ. That's W E A C T number four EJ. And check out our website, weact.org, for more information about environmental justice. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, look out for lead. <laughs> <laughs>